Well, it's great to see everybody today. Thanks for being here. If you're in the auditorium, if you're watching online or you're on Facebook Live right now, then if, or if you're out in the atrium, we're glad that you're here. I'm Dennis, one of the pastors here, and I've asked my friend Josh to join me, but while he's coming up, um, wasn't it a great Easter? I mean, it was just a week ago. We were all gathered here. Good Friday, our Ash Wednesday service, the whole experience through our passages series has just been a a terrific process for all of us. And thank you for participating. If you invited people, you came, you brought people, you served in some fashion during our Easter season, thank you, thank you. Josh, you are a multi-gifted man. Thank you. Yeah, he is. He does so many things. Um, But I've asked him if he would take a moment to play one of the best licks he knows on his guitar. And uh, tell us about what you're going to play. I thought maybe I would play a little bit of a Dave Beagle song. Anybody Dave Beagle fan? Oh, yeah. A couple, quite a few. I don't think he'll mind. So I'll just play a little bit. have you been playing guitar? My mom bought me an electric guitar. I think I was 11 for my birthday, and I've been playing ever since. Wow. So six years. So (laughs) 23 years to Dennis. Yeah. Good growth for six years. Yeah, thank you. Hey, um, what do you you like about guitar? Um, It... Most of the music I listened to at the time as a teenager, you know, like angsty teenage guitar music. So I guess it resonated with me for that reason. But I was also my, I was around church a lot and my mm-hmm. mom and grandfather and stuff, pastors and stuff. So it, it was a good opportunity to get involved in worship. Yeah. And maybe that's responsible for most of the time I've played is, you know, worship. Well, we're glad that you're doing it. How, how You don't just get up and play like that. How many hours of practice do you think you've put in over your six year, 20 some years? I don't know. I tried to estimate it. My guess is between four and 5,000 hours. Thousands, yeah. thousands of hours to play like that. Aren't you glad that he's been doing that? Thank you, Josh. Thank you. So how many of you, if I brought you up here right now, put that guitar in your hands, could play that? We're looking for new band members, so I just thought I'd ask that. How many of you, if I brought you up right now and gave you that guitar and put it in your hands and said, try really, really, really hard to play like that? How many of you could do it? Yeah, yeah. there's an immense difference between trying hard to do something and training hard to do something. How many of you have ever run a marathon? Oh, wow, that's awesome. Half marathon, we'll add to the group here. All right, this is a question for all of us. How many of you, if I shot a gun off right now and said, go, could run a marathon right now if I said, try really, really hard to run a marathon. How many of you could do that? Yeah, yeah. And the only reason you got your hands up is why? Because they've trained. There's an immense difference between trying hard to do something and training hard. There are people in our church who will play like Josh someday. 
and run marathons someday. You're probably, you might be here. But it won't be for trying hard. It will be because you've put in the time to train and to practice. Because there's immense difference between trying hard and training hard. Have you ever tried harder to be patient with a three-year-old? Have you ever faced, tried really hard to face the temptation of a wonderful piece of milk chocolate and a bag of french fries and resist the temptation and have more self-control in the moment? Have you ever tried really, really hard to do that? How'd that work? Have you ever... I tried to get my garage organized. I've tried really hard. It still looks like an explosion at Home Depot. You can only... There's a big difference between trying hard and training hard. Most of the important things we'll do in our lives will not be the result of trying harder. And that's why Jesus says this in one of his most, one of his most famous statements. It's in the very last verses of the book of Matthew, which we've been going through in our passages series. The, the church has called this the Great Commission. This weekend, I'm calling it the marvelous endgame of Jesus. And this is what he writes. Then Jesus came to them in Matthew 28. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Notice Jesus doesn't say go out and make Christians. That word's only used three times in the New Testament. He says make disciples, a word that's used 269 times. Jesus says, make disciples, become an apprentice, become a student, a learner. <laughs> Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.8. He says this, physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. Most of us in our more reflective moments would admit, to use Paul's terms, we're not very godly. We're not. Yeah, we've accomplished some things, influenced some people, Maybe I've done some good things, are generally decent human beings in our lives, but underneath that, there's an undercurrent of disappointment because we know we could have done more or been more or whatever. We haven't accomplished all of our dreams. Anyone have a little undercurrent of disappointment going in their life? Me too. I do. And some of my disappointment is trivial and even a little neurotic. I would have loved to have more physical prowess Obviously. I would love to drive a really hot car. I drive a 2005 Toyota Matrix. Has two squirrels and a big rubber band for an engine. <laughs> I, I would love, uh, nobody would accuse me of having a shrewd business sense. I spend way too much time thinking about what people think about me. And some of my disappointment runs a little deeper. I mean, early in my life, I would look in, uh, on my kids' bedrooms at night when they're sleeping and dream and think about the kind of father I'd want to be and the kind of life I'd want to orchestrate for them, the kind of magical moments that I could create as a dad. That we would spend hours in our days walking across, walking by clear brooks up in the mountains where I could teach them about bugs and centipedes and flies. I could teach them how to fly fish. I would love to do that. And I'd love to spend time with them where we would spend... Hours rolling around in a fresh mown hay field. I could teach them how to garden and read and love people and learn how to pray and all of that. I'd, I'd love to be able to do that. Teach them how to play basketball. 
And at night, I would tuck them in and pray with them and be the kind of father that could keep all the boogeymen away. And then I'd think about how the day really went, how I'd rush to get them up for breakfast and get their cereal eaten so they could get out the door to school. And how when my daughter had pulled out a piece of her latest artwork from her backpack, I was so distracted by the things I had to do at work that day, I just looked at her picture and muttered, fine. And now at dinner time, when Ryan spilled his milk, I yelled at him for spilling his milk as if there's some underlying character flaw because he spilled his milk. And when I saw the look of hurt and confusion on his face, I realized I'd put a tiny wound in his heart and that I can't get it back. I can't take those angry words back. When I tucked the kids in at night, I prayed a perfunctory prayer because I was so tired and wanted some time on my own because I knew tomorrow I'm gonna get up and do it all over again. I'm disappointed in how I can love God so little and sin so much. I can become so preoccupied with things that are trivial like money, like thinking about what people think about me and care so little about things that really matter, big things like children dying for lack of food or lack of clean water, preventable diseases. I'm disappointed that I'm not a better husband, a better father, a better grandfather, a better pastor, better leader, better friend, better neighbor. And I'll say all that here because I think most of us are like the rest of us. And deep down, you have that trickle or perhaps a river of disappointment going in your life as well, not so much because of what we've done, but because we understand the potential that we could have lived into and we just maybe have settled. And all of that isn't gonna change by trying harder. We can change, do you believe that? Do you believe you can change? Do you? Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't be here if you didn't believe that. You'd be out doing something else. The possibility of transformation is the essence of hope. And that's why you're here, because you have hope that you could change. And the key text for us today comes out of 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 26, because it tells us how we can change. I'll read it. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. But we do it for an eternal prize, so I run with purpose in every step. The image of athletics is a very familiar one to Paul because of where he is in Corinth. It's the site of the famous Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympic Games in Greece. Paul himself has probably been to these games. For the athletes who competed, it wasn't a matter of showing up and trying hard. In fact, if they were unwilling to submit themselves to a 10-month training program, they would be disqualified before the race ever started. And Paul says that they're competing for a prize that is going to fade away. The status of winning that race, you know what the crown was made of? Celery. Now, there's a crown that'll fade fast, especially if you're a vegetarian. (laughs) Spiritual growth is not a matter of trying harder. It's a matter of training wisely. And what kind of training am I talking about? Well, that depends on what you want to learn to do. If you want to learn to play Bach on a piano, you need to spend years and years practicing scales and chord progressions. That's the easy way to learn to play Bach. The hard way to learn to play Bach, sit down at a grand piano in a packed auditorium and, and just go, hey, play something. That's the hard way. The need for preparation and training is true for every aspect of the Christian life that we want to learn to do. You want to learn to forgive, to be humble, 
to be patient, to find courage or joy. We don't develop those qualities by just trying harder to be kind and patient and joyful. We develop these qualities by training ourselves in the kind of activities to grow the kinds of trees that produce patience and joy. We call these practices spiritual exercises or spiritual disciplines. The word is unfortunate because oftentimes when we think discipline, we think of duty and rigidity and no fun, all that is the word discipline. It's an unfortunate word, but here's the definition. Write this down, it's really helpful. A discipline is any activity that I could do now by direct effort that will help me do what I cannot do now by direct effort. I can't play guitar like Josh does today by direct effort. Can't do it. What can I do by direct effort? I could take guitar lessons from Josh. I could start to make my fingers learn all the G chords and the C chords and the progressions. I can do that by direct effort. And if I do that long enough, guess what? Someday, I might be able to play like that, hopefully. And that's what a discipline or a practice does. It develops those things in us, those habits and practices, so that over the course, these habits and practices become natural to us. They become part of who we are. We become the right kind of people. Josh doesn't just play guitar. He's a guitarist. There's a difference. A person was on their street of New York City uh, trying to find their way to the Carnegie Concert Hall. And so she stopped a New Yorker and said, how do I get to Carnegie Concert Hall? And the New Yorker said, practice, practice, practice. Jesus says the same thing in the Great Commission. He says, make disciples. How? Here's how. Matthew 28, 20. Teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Obedience is training ourselves to live in the love of God. Obedience is learning to do what Jesus would do if Jesus was me. Not if I was Jesus, if Jesus was me. A spiritual discipline or practice is any activity that helped me gain the power and live the life as Jesus taught and modeled. A couple things spiritual disciplines are not, three things. First of all, they're not a spiritual scorecard. The purpose of practicing free throws and jump shots in basketball practice isn't so I can make jump shots and free throws in basketball practice. It's so that I can make them in the game when they really count. Some people, when you're around them, they give you the impression, they kind of brag about how much they pray or how much, many hours they serve or how much Bible they know. Well, the purpose of prayer is not to pray. The purpose of prayer is to connect with God. The purpose of knowing our Bibles and memorizing our Bibles isn't so that we can beat people or up, up with our Bible knowledge. It's so that the truth of God becomes embedded in our lives, in our character, and the wisdom of God is accessible to us when I need it in life. That's what we're about. So they're not a scorecard. Number two, they're not necessarily unpleasant. The kind of spiritual practices we engage in will be determined by the kind of training, by the kind of event we're training for. If we're training for a triathlon, that's gonna involve one kind of training. But if we're training for, say, a pie-eating contest, that's a whole different kind of training. Right? You, and here's how you train for the pie-eating contest. You eat pie every day for six months. I guarantee you, you will be much better at the contest if you do that. And the training will be very delicious. Some people have the impression that all the spiritual disciplines involve habits and activities that I'd just rather not do. They always involve some kind of pain. But if we're training for a life of peace or joy or delight or affection or worship, it only makes sense that some of these practices 
are gonna be very enjoyable. Like some of the fruit that I like to have in my life are peace and joy and delight. And one of the spiritual practices I engage in to create that is fly fishing. I do. Sometimes, honestly, it's just recreation. Especially when I go with somebody and we've got this little competition thing going. That's not a spiritual practice. That's just recreation. But sometimes when I'm on that river and I'm in God's creation and I'm just in it, there's a, there's a life that comes up in me. There's a, it's a spiritual practice for me, fly fishing. It's very enjoyable. And if the fish are biting, it's even more enjoyable. There's a lot more joy and delight when the fish are biting. Less truth, but more, more, more joy. Uh, number three, they are not a way to earn God's favor. We don't get extra credit or spiritual mileage points with God the more we do these things. There are no Starbucks stars for every dollar you put in the offering, sorry. The training is for our benefit. They're only valuable because they transform us into the kinds of people who deep down God created us to be and we actually know we can become. That's what all these practices are for. And how do you know if these, if you're a discipline, how do you know if you're a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus? How do you know that? Are you in or are you out? Well, Paul Hebert is a teacher who wrote an article a couple years ago where he talked about two different ways of sorting objects as to either in or out. The first way he called, he calls it the boundary set. And it's determined whether an object is in the set by how well they fit the criteria. So let's say that the set is a triangle, right? To be a triangle, you have to have three sides and three angles. Could a circle belong to the triangle set? No, it doesn't fit, meet the criteria. How about a square? Could a square get in this set? No, it doesn't meet the criteria. A circle cannot try to be more triangly. It, it, it's a circle. The second kind of set he talked about is a centered set where one is either in or out based on its orientation to the center. And what counts and what matters here is what direction I'm going and if there's movement is whether or not I'm in that set. So for instance, baldness. Right? Who would be the absolute definition poster child of baldness? Maybe, maybe Mr. Clean, right? He would be in the bald set, right? Who would be for sure not in the set? Maybe him <laughs> or him. I think he's a him. I don't know. Who would not be? How about this guy? In or out? In or out? How much Rogaine is he using? How many implants is he? I mean, we don't know, right? We don't know. How about, how about these? You know I was going to get a picture of my granddaughters here in again when it's real soon, right? Are they in or out? Well, when they were born, two of them were in the bald set, and Ivy in the middle, you can see that big mop of hair maybe, uh, was always out. And every day they're more out except in my heart. They're more and more in every single day. They're right, right over there. Um, sorry, I'm a little distracted. Well, <clears throat> what's the, here's the question. What's the maximum number of hairs you could have and still be in the group? What's the problem with this? Now we're talking about this. 
right? Apparently, God knows the numbers of your head, of the hairs on your head, so he knows if you're in or out. The New Testament presents a community of disciples or apprentices that much, look much more like the centered set than the boundary set. The center is Jesus. He defines and lives the kingdom of God life and offers it to anyone who wants to pursue him. Anyone who is learning to love God and their neighbors are in, Jesus says. Jesus was constantly offering inship to people who thought, I'm out and I could never get in. He was saying, no, you can, come on. In fact, in fact, you probably are in. If you're moving in the direction of me, you're in. That's what Jesus said, you're in. Bothered people, all kinds of people in those days who really wanted this. Today it's the same way. So when Jesus offers inship to tax collectors like Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19 or sinful woman in Luke 7, he treated people who thought they were outies like innies. Samaritans, lepers, Canaanite women, divorcees, you, me. Jesus' most common invitation to people wasn't believe in me. It was follow me. 56 times in the New Testament, there are references to following Jesus. Now, belief's important. Most famous verse in the Bible, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. But belief isn't just a mental assent to a group of facts. Satan believes in Jesus. He believes in the reality of Jesus. He believes that Jesus rose from the dead. Satan believes all that stuff, but you, he does not trust him, and he is not following him. So belief is important to a point, but belief involves trusting and following. There's an old tradition in Australian ranches located in parts of the country that are very dry. And they said, there's two ways to keep your cattle on the ranch. One is to build fences. The other, drill a well. Drill a well. And in what a gift it would be to our world today that is becoming more polarized and more politicized if we would become completely well-centered with Jesus as the source as our well, our source of life, and continually drawing people closer and closer to the life-giving water that Jesus provides. That's the kind of church we want to be, and that's the kind of people I think you and I want to be as well. And so where's the question? Are you following? On one hand, are you following? Where are you? What direction is your nose pointed? Toward Jesus? Away from Jesus? Are you standing, looking both directions, trying to decide? Remember, membership is about movement and direction. Are you taking steps? What do we do in order to train? How do we stay on this path? How do we know we train? We're involved in the training program, exercises, the spiritual disciplines. That's how we, that's how we grow. And one of the best ways to train here at Crossroads is to take all four of our next step classes. This is our defined spiritual growth pathway. We want you to take the classes. And today, as Katie... Uh, I guess you didn't mention it. I'm mentioning it now. We have one class. We have, actually, we're offering all four today, but there's one. If you've never taken the Discovering Crossroads class, take it. You could take it right after the service. We have lunch, childcare, the whole thing. Take the step. You know, if this is your church or you're going, I'm, I'm serious about my spiritual growth, take the step, then take the next one and the next one. We'd love to see hundreds of people in the next year complete our next step classes, and we can do it. How many of you would like to be more loving? 
Have more joy. You don't have to raise hands. Have more joy. Worry less. Have more peace. How many of you would like to be more patient? How many of you live with someone who you wish had more patience and less anger? How many of you would like to be more kind, have more self-control, or draw closer to God? If you're wondering where I got that list, it's from Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Here it is. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Notice, it says that these characteristics are the fruit of the Holy Spirit's activity in our lives. I'll let you in on a little agricultural secret. You don't go out and pick up fruit right off the ground. You pick it off of a plant or a tree. And this verse says, if you want the fruit, you gotta grow the tree. You gotta grow the tree. And how do you do that? Well, let's say you wanted to be a more loving person. You can't just try really hard to be a loving person. You grow the tree that, love grow, that loving people grow, and that's doing kind things for people. That's the practice. That's the activity. We have the energy to do that. I don't know about you, but sometimes the reason I'm not loving is because I'm just tired and worn out. It takes a lot of energy to be loving. So maybe the spiritual practice that I can do my, by my own effort, and maybe a little melatonin, is sleep. Get some sleep. When I have energy, I'm a much more loving person. When I'm tired, I can be cranky. Time Magazine suggested that the sleep deficit in America is worse than the national budget deficit. Sometimes I notice people fall asleep while I'm preaching. In fact, it happened two weeks ago. I told my wife on the way home, I told her about it. I said, honey, you need to get more sleep on Saturday night. It's embarrassing. One of my goals in my neighborhood is to be a loving neighbor. And I don't just try hard. And many of you do this. So I'm not like holding myself up as the model. But a couple weeks ago when we had that bomb cyclone, I noticed my neighbor was gone. So I just took my little shovel over there and shoveled off his driveway and his sidewalk. Loving thing. Um, uh, when our neighbors leave on a trip, you know, we say, hey, we'll get the mail. We'll water your plants inside and out. We'll eat the food that you left in the refrigerator. You do those things. That's how we become loving people. Um, how about more patient? You want to be a more patient? You want to eat the fruit of patience? Here's how you have to do it. You have to learn to wait. People hate to wait. How many of you hate to wait? Oh, yeah. We are a nation full of wait hate. We are. Nation full of it. And here's how you, you want to learn patience? I'll give you a little assignment here. All right? And here's how you know if you're sick with it. When you're in the grocery store, when you walk up to the checkout line, if you are not a good waiter, you're like counting the number of items in everybody's cart in front of you, multiplying it by the number of carts, and you're picking the line with the shortest number. How many of you do that? Uh-huh, yeah, yep. Uh, and if you're really sick, this is what you do. When you get in line, A, you look over line B, and the person gets in line the same time you did. And as you check out your groceries, you're watching where that person is in line B. And if you manage to get your groceries checked out before them, it's like a moral victory. Yeah! <laughs> so here's the spiritual practice for the next month. doesn't count if you just do it one day. This is a practice to learn to wait. Get in the longest line at the grocery store. Yep, uh, there you go. 
And when you're pulling up to a stoplight and you're trying to decide which lane of traffic to get in, pick the one with the three cement trucks. (laughs) Just saying. And it won't help if you just spend all your time like frustrated, ah, I hate to wait. Here's what you do. You refocus your mind. You begin to notice things around you. You begin to look at the people around you, whether in the checkout line and cars beside you. Pray for them. Wonder what's going on. Some people look angry. Some people look like they've just had a you know, promotion or a big salary raise. Thank God for them. And when you're standing in that grocery line, I mean, we're in a grocery store. Thank God for all of this food, even if most of it's in the three carts right in front of you. That's what we can do to become more patient. What about, do you constantly crave approval or kudos of accomplishment or do you fear failure? It's because your world is too you-centered. And here's how to move away from that. Here's a spiritual practice. Take 10 minutes every day. Find a spot, your deck, backyard, a park, whatever, where you can see Long's Peak. And just sit there and look at that and realize God put that there. He put that there a long time before you ever came on the scene. It's going to be there a long time after I leave this scene. And when God was creating the world, whenever he put Long's Peak there, he said, I can do better than that. We can do better than that. Let's create a creature in our image that's a, that's, that can love, love us and love each other. It's a risky creation, God says, but at the pinnacle of creation, he didn't make Long's Peak. He made you and he made me. And he said, I love you and I'll give my life for you. Now you want to you want to be affirmed. I want you to have your identity shaped, not by your circumstances, what you accomplish, what you fail. You want to have your identity shaped. Allow the love of God to just settle into your bones. That'll change you. That'll begin to grow the tree there. How about humility? You want to have the fruit of humility? Well, the Humility is like the worst one because the more you focus on trying to be humble, the more you think about yourself. So the idea is to think of yourself less. And the, one of the best ways to, do, to think of yourself less is to begin to serve other people. Just serve them. Put them ahead of you. Put them ahead of you. Doesn't mean you're not important, all that business. Doesn't mean they're better than you. Just serve them. And we talked about it. Project One's coming up a week from yesterday, next Saturday. It is, it's not just a community service project. It is a spiritual practice of our church to help us, all of us, including myself, to remember it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about other people, about other people. And I'll guarantee you, if you make this day, you come and you serve and it's all about you, you're gonna be miserable. You come that day and make it about others, you're gonna, it's gonna be one of the best days of your year. If you have kids at home, teenagers especially, who need to learn some humility, we had a couple of cool projects that would help them learn some humility. Bring them, bring them. Remember, if you want to eat the fruit, you got to grow the tree. And what about the area of finances? Many of us would go, you know, Dennis, I'd love to be more generous. I got a lot of financial stress in my life, though. Stressed about money and security and retirement and paying our bills. There's friction in my relationships because of money. We don't seem we ever have enough. Worries on spin cycle in my head because, well, Katie already mentioned three disciplines we can do in the next 60 days, 45 days, is the Blessed Life series. We are going to attempt to train our church 
and become even more generous than we are. Unlock the power of generous living. What can you do? Do the daily readings. Get in the group. Come every weekend. Don't miss one. If you have to miss one, watch it online. Everyone is that important. Because the financial freedom doesn't grow on a money tree. Financial freedom comes when we grow the tree of generosity. That's when we can become free. It's not about having more. So I hope you'll sign on for the whole series. Are you a workaholic? Are you driven? More, 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 more? I can be very driven at times. So what's the spiritual practice? Here it is, gratitude. Being grateful for what we do have, not always looking out there for that next thing, grasping after the next thing, but looking around going, I've got a lot of things to be grateful for, a lot of things to be thankful for. And so here's a new practice. I read about it this week. Do what Daniel Pink calls the mental subtraction practice. Make a list of the things that you're grateful for and then ask yourself, where would I be if this wasn't true? If I never had this gift, where would I be? So so you just start subtracting off the list of things and go, what would my life be like today if that had never been true for me? This happened the other evening when we were at the triplets' house Uh, Lila, their older sister, we were talking at dinner and we were just commenting about how the triplets came to be and we were kind of, well, they came from Ryan and Ryan and where did Ryan come from? He came from Barbara and me. So she's doing all this stuff in her head and she looked at Barbara and me one time and she said, you mean to tell me if you and Nana had not gotten married, Ryan, my daddy wouldn't be, I wouldn't be and the triplets wouldn't be. And I said, yeah, that's true. And she just got this look on her face. And I just got this sense in my heart that had Barbara and I not married, none of this would be. And so I did the subtraction thing. Ryan wouldn't be and Lila wouldn't be and the triplets wouldn't be. And it made me just so much more grateful for the moment almost 40 years ago when Barbara and I said, I do. That's what she said. I said, I do? She goes, yeah, you do. The only way to break the cycle of more, more, more is to grow a tree of gratitude. And we can do that. We can do that. And I've just listed some of the fruit. There are lots more fruits that can be had in your life and mine. So here's the two final questions. I want you to give some thought to this. The first one is this. What's a fruit I want more of in my life? What is it? Might have been some I listed. Humility, gratitude, all of those. It might be one I didn't list. Self-discipline, self-control, I didn't really talk about that much. But read that passage, that Galatians passage, and pick a fruit. Which fruit? If you're really risky, you might ask the person that you're living with, which fruit do you think I need to work on? And then here's the key. Don't just try hard. That, that, that's, that isn't gonna help. Figure out what are the practices, what are the things that I can do now with my own effort that I can nurture and cultivate this tree so that someday there's going to be fruit. Fruit. Pablo Casals is arguably at the time when he was living uh, the most famous and accomplished cellist in the world. And one day someone asked him, he was in his 80s, why, Mr. Casals, are you still practicing every day? You are the best cellist in the world. His response, because I think I'm getting a little better. You trying to get better? Practice, 
every day, every day. Take these, invite God into the process. God, empower me to do these disciplines. Decide, begin to do them, and here's what's gonna happen one day soon. You and the people around you and me, we're gonna have fruit juice dripping off our chins. That's the vision. And so I want us to end our time today, not really with a prayer. I want us to stand and read this passage from 1 Corinthians 9. So will you stand with me? Our team will put it on the screen up there. And we'll read this together. And really, the last line, the last phrase, is the guts of it. So here we go. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. And may God give you and me the strength and the vision to live like that, not just today, on and on and on.